0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 12 The Seven Eyed Lamb. This week we're skipping straight to the end the end of the world and the end of the New Testament. Of course, that means we're talking about the book of Revelation, and it's revelation in the singular, not revelations, as you may commonly hear, though a great many things do get revealed, so the pluralization is understandable. Revelation is an apocalypse, hence the adjective it is most commonly associated with, apocalyptic, but this word in its original usage did not just mean zombie movies or pandemic, ahem, nuclear war, if you lived through the Cold War, or massive climate change, but instead the unveiling of hidden things through angelic or divine intermediaries. It's a big part of Second Temple Jewish literature. Part of what gets unveiled is the structure of the heavenly world above, as well as the cataclysmic breakdown of the world below. The two are closely linked. So we see things in Revelation, But we also receive instructions, promises, and threats, according to God's will, which places the text in a prophetic mode. The last book of the New Testament bridges these two ways of communicating sacred truths, prophecy and revelatory visions. It was written in a time, in a cultural context, where prophets had enormous cachet. We might even think of the different groups of Jesus following Jews and Gentiles as organized around prophetic teachers whose charismatic authority directed and inspired their respective communities. It's easy to imagine how some of these charismatic prophets might not always be in accord with one another, and that possibility looms large in different moments of revelation. The seer, known as John of Patmos, reports being exiled to the island of Patmos because of persecution as a result of his allegiance to the Jesus movement. Some scholars think it's possible that John came from Judea having fled that province in the midst of the first Jewish war against the Romans between 66 and 70 of the common era, which resulted in the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, the holy center of late ancient Judaism. Throughout the text, John speaks about rituals and priestly practices in heaven that corresponds in many ways to what happened in the temple of Jerusalem, whether he's from Jerusalem or originated from the Eastern diaspora, John and his community are coming from a Jewish context which just shows us, again, how difficult it is to parse out where late ancient Judaism ends and early Christianity begins. We're going to be taking our time with the text over the next couple of weeks. It's so packed with devilish material, and it's also the source for the title of the show. So we have to show the proper respect. And it's also really complicated, and sometimes it's easy to just get overwhelmed by all the bizarre imagery and number symbolism. So hopefully the pods we record on Revelation can serve as a path through its chaotic landscape. A lot of what we've talked about on this pod concerns fantastical beings, monsters, demons, angels, and the like. In Revelation, it is Christ, Jesus, who appears in ominously fantastical manifestations. John reports in chapter one that he was in the spirit, which means in an ecstatic state of spiritual receptivity, when, quote, one like the Son of Man appeared before him, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. This is an awesome, almost terrifying figure, referred to as the Son of Man, which in turn refers to a figure named in the Hebrew Bible, in particular the book of Daniel, which concerns a messianic figure coming to subdue the enemies of God in Israel. The Son of Man is also an epithet that Jesus claims in the Gospels. The visible characteristics of the Son of Man make a ton of references to prophetic visions from the Hebrew Bible. The one that really sticks out most to me, and yes, pun is intended, is that double-edged sword protruding from his mouth, which comes from Isaiah 49 too. This is one of the really interesting things I find about Revelation. So much of the imagery is bizarre phantasmagoria, yet it also isn't sui generis. It's being adapted from older texts all along the way, building on Jewish revelations. Anyway, this is a really intimidating presence we're dealing with here. John describes hitting the deck as if dead at its appearance. But this being reassures John, don't be afraid. Except know this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the holder of the keys of death and Hades. Yeah, you like, you're totally right. No big deal. Now start writing down everything I'm going to say to you, my dear fellow. This, I submit, rather than Johnson Boswell, is the true origin of the Holmes-Watson dynamic. The Son of Man wants John to write some sternly worded letters to seven churches in the Eastern Roman Empire, namely Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, and Philadelphia. It's hard to understand what's going on with the compliments and threats that get doled out in these letters. The context is largely absent. but All the browbeating does give a clue to the conflicts between competing prophets in diasporic Judaism and early Christianity. The best part for me is getting that one verse Daniel Day-Lewis, playing Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York, gets to quote, which is what the Son of Man says to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you from my mouth. Imagine hearing that from your boss or your god. Satan shows up in these haranguing letters. The references are almost offhand, as if anyone reading them would already be familiar with the dark Sith Lord, so there's no point in belaboring it. The Son of Man references something he calls the Synagogue of Satan, which the editors of the Jewish Annotated New Testament think of as Jewish diasporic communities that have given up or modified Jewish law. This is important because the term Synagogues of Satan carry significant anti-Semitic baggage, with Christian readers over the centuries assuming that it meant all synagogues belong to Satan. But no, only the ones that seem to be doing the Jewish law wrong from the perspective of John of Patmos. Other times, the Son of Man references Satan's throne in their midst when addressing the church at Pergamum. This seems to be an allusion to the imperial altar on the Acropolis of that city, so that we can see early on how there's this explicit link being made between the deities worshipped in Roman cults and the powers and principalities of the devil. The cities of the Eastern Roman Empire were especially ostentatious when it came to their temples and monuments. Much of the East had backed the wrong horse in the person of Mark Antony in the 30s BCE, and cities such as Pergamum looked to propitiate the victorious Octavian, turned Augustus, with temples erected in his honor. This set a precedent for imperial cultic piety in the eastern Mediterranean, and it's easy to see how John would have reacted against it, especially if he were a refugee from Judea, thinking back on the destroyed temple of Jerusalem while gazing on these temples of Roman civil religion. Another reference to the devil comes after denouncing the synagogue of Satan to the church of Smyrna, with the Son of Man predicting that the devil is about to throw some of their members into prison as a test of their resolve. Here again, there's a close proximity between the devil and civil authorities who have the power and right to jail imperial subjects. Satan really does still mean adversary or accuser in this context. After taking dictation on the letters to be sent to these seven church communities, John looks up into heaven and sees a door hanging open and hears a voice like a trumpet instructing him to come up and enter. Being still in the spirit, John is suddenly in the heavenly throne room. The one seated on the throne appears to be composed of precious stones like jasper and carnelian, that is something that's orangish red. I find it strange because this being is supposed to be God, the man behind the curtain, or in this case, behind the rainbow, but this divine personage remains pretty sketchily defined in Revelation. Surrounding the throne are 24 beings, named as elders in the text, each dressed all in white, crowned in gold. The number 7 appears prominently in this scene with 7 torches in the throne room and throughout the book we get 7 churches, 7 seals, 7 stars, 7 trumpets, etc., 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 revealing the numerological preoccupations of this literary composition. The number 7 is of importance here because the 7th day of the week is the day of the Sabbath, the day in the creation story when God rested. Structuring the imagery and narrative around a number that links up with the architecture of the cosmos lends authority to the prophecy John utters. The 24 elders seems to be a deliberate duplication or doubling of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's not totally clear who they are. They might be patriarchs or older holy people who have ascended to heaven. It's kind of vague. They're not there alone, though. There are four other creatures, each of which is covered with eyes on all sides, and each has six wings. And one appears like a lion, the other like an ox, the third has a human face, the fourth is similar to an eagle. The wings and the eyes make the creatures really similar to these angels from the book of Ezekiel, known as seraphim. Both the living creatures and the 24 elders ceaselessly worship the occupant of the throne. It's interesting to me how strange these creatures appear. We often associate heaven with crispy white outfits and Air Force Ones and yeah, whatever. (laughs) But here we have these strange beasts. Revelation and Ezekiel use these monstrous denizens as a way to evoke the uncanny otherness of the world above. It's like showing how different it is from the world we think of as normal. For our purposes, it's interesting to note the diabolical side of the story isn't the only side with scary monsters. And it keeps intensifying. The divine person in the throne room clutches a scroll in its right hand. John hears a mighty angel voicing a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? John, who is, seems like a really emotional person and is, you know, in this really ecstatic spirit state, begins sobbing because no one seems to be worthy. But he is reassured by one of the elders. Don't worry. The Lion of Judah is worthy. Okay, a lion. Where? I guess it wouldn't be so strange, up with all these other freakish creatures. The elder nods towards the throne, before which now stands not exactly a lion, but a lamb. And not any lamb, but one with seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns. Hmm. Isn't that our name? The name of the show? No, no, I'm, I'm mixing it up. Maybe somewhere down the line we'll get this all straightened out as we explore Revelation some more. But good Lord... A lamb with seven eyes and seven horns? What a grotesque sight. Again, monstrous. A portent. The old-fashioned kind, like a monstrous birth that means the end of the world is coming or something. I guess that that makes sense with Revelation. But they're calling this thing a lion? What kind of lion is seven-eyed and a lamb? The text performs an auto-allegorical reading of itself, clarifying that each of the seven horns, together with an eye, stands for the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven spirits. I thought there was one Holy Spirit. Maybe this whole Christian doctrine thing is a lot less self-contained than one to think. Another ominous aspect of the monster slam is how it stands, and I'm quoting here, as if slaughtered. Like, you're posing for a picture and someone says... Pull was like he'd just been slaughtered. Like, what does that mean? A dead look in each of those seven eyes? Let's also note that this lamb is our newest look at the figure of the Christ who initially appeared to be the terrifying son of man and now stands at the throne as the monster lamb. The 24 elders start chanting about how this lamb is the one worthy for opening the seals on the scroll because it's been slaughtered for the sake of all. The four weirdo living creatures join in the chant. They sing of an interesting soteriology, an idea of salvation. And I'm quoting here, By your blood, you ransom for God, saints from every tribe and language. The language of tribe harkens back to the 12 tribes, but the message is also ecumenical, including saintly representatives of all the tribes into an enlarged cosmic Israel. And this really reminds me of Paul in Romans on the the Gentile wild shoots being grafted onto the older olive tree branches of Israel. Egged on by the crowd of heavenly gray beards and weirdo creatures, the monster lamb starts breaking the seals of the scroll one by one. At the opening of the first, a rider on a white horse, possibly foreseeing fascist imagery of the 20th century, comes forth claiming a crown of victory. Another seal broken, and there comes a rider on a red horse, who stands for internal division, taking peace from the earth, as the text says. The third seal is broken, and the third rider appears on a black horse, holding a pair of scales symbolizing famine and economic collapse. At the breaking of the fourth seal, a rider appears on a pale green horse, you know, like it's decomposing. And of course, this is the rider death, and Hades followed after him. Quote, they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild animals. Each of the writers is an allegory for the different catastrophes that are primed to befall the late great planet earth. The cracking open of the fifth seal might slide by unnoticed, but it's actually really important. At its opening, we see an altar in heaven under which are all the souls of those who have been slaughtered for the word of God. They beseech God that their blood be avenged and judgment leveled against the remaining inhabitants of the earth. Pretty charitable. Each of these folks receives a white robe as if they're at a spa and told to be patient. The full number of those who are going to die hasn't yet been achieved. So chill out here in the waiting room as the corpses stack up. My exposure to what is revealed in The Sixth Seal comes, honestly, from my childhood, watching and incessantly rewatching the 1984 classic Ghostbusters. And I'm thinking about the part when Winston and Ray are discussing why their ghostbusting business has been so busy. And I wish I could just play the audio from the movie, but copyright law being what it is, I'll just summarize here. There is a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The full moon becomes like blood. The stars fall. Mountains and stars are shifted out of their natural positions all over the place. And everyone left, from the richest, most powerful, to the poorest, most humble, flee for the hills to hide, begging for the rocks to fall down and cover them so they don't have to stare into those seven eyes in the lamb's face. And who can blame them? Those seven eyes ain't blinking. Whereas as the text puts it, their great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Finally, we get the seventh seal. And no, it's not an Igmar Bergman movie with Max von Sudau. The lamb cracks it open, and there is silence for the span of a half hour. Pin drop quiet. Seven angels receive seven trumpets in front of the altar. The numbers in Revelation just keep multiplying over and over again, as if jamming them together was the point of the whole affair. An eighth angel starts burning some incense, you know, like keeping the vibe low-key. No, wait, he's taking the censer, the incense ball, which has since burst into flame and throwing it down, 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 down onto the earth, and the end of the world has begun. This perfectly encapsulates the link between ritual and divine judgment in the text, which is building off of earlier apocalyptic texts, which themselves are obsessed with the notion that the cultic practices of the temple correspond to a perfect heavenly exemplar. So that's how you get from burning incense to throwing fireballs. Those seven angels start blowing their trumpets and it means the trees, the grass, a third of the earth itself are all burning up with the seas turning to blood after a flaming mountain falls into them and stars named Wormwood are falling from the sky to poison the streams. All the sources of light in the sky start to brown out and fade away like it's California. A damn talking eagle flies over the whole scene, crying, Whoa, whoa, woe" to the inhabitants of the earth. The commentators in the Jewish Annotated New Testament nimbly observe that the eagle was a symbol of Rome. And so it's ironic that the Roman eagle is heralding the destruction of its own empire. The fifth angel opens up a great shaft that leads to the center of the earth and all these horrible locusts come up to torture everyone without the proper seal stamped on their forehead. And they're big bastards too, I'm quoting here. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates. They have tails like scorpions with stingers and their tails is their power to harm people for five months. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Abaddon means destruction while Apollyon means destroyer. We seem to be facing a proper demon here, perhaps akin to Belial from the Dead Sea Scrolls who was also made for the pit. Well, folks, the pit has been opened up and there's nothing stopping the demons from pouring out all over the planet. More angelic baddies are let loose at the blowing of the sixth trumpet. Four angels, once imprisoned in the Euphrates River, come out with 200 million cavalry riding steeds with the heads of lions and tails of bundled serpents. The heads breathe out sulfur and pestilence. It's these leonine equine exhaust fumes that kill a third of the human population. Everyone who is not killed on the spot refuses to give up demon worship and idolatry or any other sins. It's as if the text lays out this bizarre spectacle to show the reader something while offering nothing of any discernible value to its human characters. All the human characters, aside from John, that is, the divine powers in the story have an interesting trick for making him speak with their voices. This is symbolized in chapter 10, when John is presented with a little scroll that he is instructed to eat, almost like a spy who needs to dispose of a secret message. It tastes sweet as honey at first, but turns bitter in his stomach. As if to say that the message he'll be relaying, prophesied against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings, in the words of the text, will be a harsh message of vengeance. Yummy. So John is now commanded to speak out against evil wherever it may exist. The text then does a strange thing, displacing this prophetic task onto two witnesses who appear out of the blue, representing the prophets Elijah and Moses by sort of popular consensus. These two will make prophecies of terrible destruction in Jerusalem for 1,260 days, which is equal to the 42 months said to be the time when the nations will dominate the outer court of the temple. And these two are a gruesome lot, breathing fire to incinerate anyone who tries to harm them, preventing the skies from raining, spreading plagues across the land. Again, these are the good guys spreading plagues after the bad guys have done it. I guess this makes a lot of sense, listening and thinking about this in COVID times, and turning all the water sources to blood. As I keep saying, both the champion's divinity and evil come in the guise of terrifying figures in Revelation. Monsters on top of monsters. And just as they finish with their condemnations in Jeremiads, the beast from the pit scuttles out from the depths and murders them cold in the street, laying them out for all to see. There's no backstory on the beast. Is this guy the devil? I don't know. But the inhabitants of Jerusalem rejoice. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Those guys were such a pain in the ass. Keep them out there. Don't entomb them. Just let them rot. The two prophets stay that way for three and a half days until God decides it's time to breathe the breath of life back into their bodies. And lo, they're reanimated, and it scares the shit out of the people of Jerusalem who've been partying over their corpses for these days. And for those of you who are in on the story of the suicidal cult, Heaven's Gate, Do and T, two of the leaders of the cult, often styled themselves as these two messengers from Revelation 10 as a way of gaining cred with an audience that maybe was like more evangelically oriented. And just as the two prophets are revivified, a loud voice summons them up, to beam up, Star Trek style. And just in time, an earthquake cracks the city open, killing 7,000 people right at that very moment. Up in heaven, the crowd goes wild, worshiping the God on the throne, eagerly anticipating the moment when, quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. This takes us back to some prominent themes over the past few weeks. The opposition between the prince of this world and the king of the Jews, for example, and the general demonization of worldly authority, while at the same time imagining divine power in precisely the same terms. You could see this as a major drawback to this theology. Following bell hooks, you might ask, can you dismantle the master's house with the master's tools? Is kingship and empire a corruption of a heavenly form of politics, or just evil inventions? Meanwhile, in God's heavenly temple, Thunder rumbles, lightning flashes, and hail falls around the Ark of the Covenant as the earth quakes. Somewhere close by, a great portent appeared in heaven, a cosmic omen of some significance, as if all the earthquakes weren't enough. Revelation has no scruples about being excessive. A woman, clothed in the sun, adorned with a crown of twelve stars, there's the number again, is about to give birth wracked by the pains of delivering her son, who is ready to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Sounds like a real softie. But this isn't the only cosmic portent on the menu. A great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, <clears throat> appears on the scene, a real Johnny on the spot, ready to gobble up the infant right as he is delivered. A tender scene, to be sure. But the child gets snatched up to the heavenly throne room before the dragon can pounce, And guess what? Michael and the rest of the boys in the Archangel Biker Gang are not going to take this shit. They start fighting the dragon and his angels. I didn't know dragons got angels, but here we are. And the boys in white kick the shit out of the boys in red, and the dragon, now unmasked as Satan, gets thrown the hell out of heaven down to earth. And the angelic choir is singing how it is the blood of the lamb that has vanquished these foes. I must have missed that part. I thought it was just an angelic superhero battle. I didn't see any seven-eyed lamb poking his snout in there, but maybe it's just an allegory. The angels are happy for everyone in heaven. We're finally loose of that prick, the devil. But woe to the earth, says the text, and see, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Wait, this podcast just got started. We can't be ending it all in a hurry, but I guess this is a vision of the future sort of thing. On the earth, nursing a hell of a bruise from that fall, the dragon goes for the mother, but she's got eagle wings. She's flapping away, so he sends these raging waters after her, only to see them gobbled up by the earth. This whole thing really just got Babylonian, or something. Canaanite. We're back in that episode with all the watery dragons of chaos. I guess it wasn't a coincidence that we did all those. After failing to catch the mother, the dragon slinks off to cause more trouble, for those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, as the text puts it. Okay, so I've just retold the first 12 chapters of Revelation in my own flippant words, which were probably a little too flippant. I have to say, I find that last bit, which is chapter 12, a real jolt. The first 11 chapters center John and his perspective a lot more. In 12, we get this whole Star Wars thing breaking out, as if the constellations were slugging out some grand turf war. John describes them as portents, their visions or illusions of some ominous future development. The dragon story echoes ancient Greek lore, the story of the mother Leto and her infant son, the god Apollo, threatened by a monstrous snake named Python. And of course, the uncontrollable chaos of the waters evokes the Leviathan. But anyway... John himself seems to be progressively pushed further and further to the periphery of the story. It's something to keep track of as we go further, but for right now, I'm going to call it quits. Next time, Travis will walk us through the second half of Revelation, picking up these pieces that I left behind and pulling it all together. Thanks for listening, and please remember to subscribe, share, and maybe leave us a review. Big thanks to those 18 of you who've done so, so far. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.